If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Take something iconic, like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA. Used under license by FCA US LLC. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the History Extra podcast, fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The global protests of 2020 thrust the importance of understanding black history into the spotlight. But three years on, has that focus been maintained? In a conversation to mark Black History Month, recorded back in August, Matt Elton spoke to Hannah Cusworth, a freelance historian and PhD researcher with the University of Hull and English Heritage, who was previously a secondary school teacher, Pamela Roberts, a creative producer, historian and published author, whose books include Black Oxford, Untold Stories and the Adventures of a Black Edwardian Intellectual, and Hakim Adi, an acclaimed and award-winning historian whose book, African and Caribbean People in Britain, A History, was shortlisted for the Wolfson History Prize 2023. Hi, I'm Hannah Cusworth. Hi, I'm Pamela Roberts. Hi, I'm uh, Hakim Adi. Thank you all so much for being here. We are here to talk about Black History Month in the UK. Before we go any further, I thought it would be worth getting your take on Black History Month. What do you think its usefulness is? And do you think there's any dangers of it leading to the subject being ignored at other parts of the year? So this was a question that was pretty live in the history teacher community, at least a few, a couple of years ago about whether if you kind of focused on Black History Month in your school, did it then mean you weren't going to teach Black History at other times? Had Black History Month outlived its kind of course or purpose? And should we just be teaching it all year round? And for a while, I was very much in the camp of, we should get rid of it if you just have it all year round. But then I had a discussion with some of my students, and we had been teaching Black History in September, in July, and they were like, Miss, what are we doing for Black History Month? And I was like, but we, we do Black History all the time. We're like, we've literally just learned about Mansa Musa and the Kingdom of Mali. And they were like, yeah, but that's different. You know, that's like in the classroom. And I think 
from Black History Month, they wanted something that was a bit more celebratory, like a bit more about individuals in history that had achieved kind of really great things. And I think you can debate whether the rights and wrongs of that, but that was that kind of changed my perception, actually, because the students seem to see it a bit differently to how I did. Clearly, there is still a need there, sadly, to do something that is much more focused. I totally agree. A number of years ago, I know with Black History Month, there was a movement for 365 days a year. So I, not just for that month, I totally in agreement with Black History Month for the following reasons. A, it's an opportunity to start the conversation. It's surprising in the work that I do and the people I meet and engage with, there's still a lack of history of, I never knew October was Black History Month, which you think at this day and age where we are, it's kind of, nationally known but there are still pockets of communities who literally have no idea that October is Black History Month so it's good as a catalyst to start that conversation it's also good what I found over the recent years the conversation has moved on in terms of wider celebrations and people looking at exactly what is Black History Month and what is Black History and it's moved from an enslavement history to more of a celebration history and looking at the achievements and contributions of individual people. So for me, yes, I hear the argument of people saying it's tokenistic. And again, that's another debate around acknowledging value and recognition of the work and black history is history and its value. And it's not just tokenistic from the point of view, we are professional people. That's a debate that needs to be had. So it's good for starting that conversation and kind of getting it into the mainstream where we discuss a wider discourse about what is that history and the involvement. So in, in kind of summarising, yes, I'm all for Black History Month. I would say that Black History Month is a recognition of a problem. And that problem is that, generally speaking, for the other 11 months of the year, this history is ghettoized hidden, neglected, whatever word one wants to use. And as long as we have that problem and we recognise that problem, we commemorate that problem, it means the problem is still there. We haven't dealt with it. So I think that that's how I look at it, how I look at Black History Month, that we still have that problem. We haven't dealt with it. And so then we always have to consider our attitude to it, how we utilise it, as well as how we utilise the other 11 months of the year. And of course, in my position as a historian, as a teacher, as a writer, I mean, every day, every second, every minute, every hour is focusing on this history. And the question then is how to make sure that it's it's integral to the the history of this country, to, to global history, that people recognise particularly the role of Africans and those of African heritage in the general conversation about history, uh, whether we're talking about British history or world history or any history, what is the position or the positionality of Africans and those of African descent? So I think that that discussion, that argument, has to take place you know, throughout the year. And, yeah, even what what is celebrated what is commemorated in in any month uh, is is another important question how, how do we actually look at history 
not just in terms of celebrating individuals, but actually what it, what is history actually all about and what are we trying to teach people about history? What lessons are we drawing from history? These, these are also very important questions to consider in October and every month, every month of the year. There's some really interesting things from all of you there, particularly uh, about the connections between, I suppose, this subject and wider history and the subject's position. While I had you all here, I thought it might be worth running through some of the, I suppose, the arenas in which this history is explored, starting with universities. What's your take on the current state of black history research and study in universities? Well, we, we have a lot of problems in academia, as in every other sector whether in schools and so on you can say we've made some advances but there are you know one can identify particular problems i think one problem we have in education generally is that we have very few people of african and caribbean heritage who are actually engaged with history and if we look at school teachers school history teachers, the percentage of them who are of African and Caribbean heritage is very, very small. I think when we look to the figures, I haven't looked at the figures this year, when we looked some years ago, out of 16,000 history teachers in schools, some 260-odd were of African and Caribbean heritage. So that's a very major problem. And it indicates a wider problem of those who study history at university level. And again, we found, looking at the statistics on that, that amongst, we can say, black undergraduates, history was the third least popular subject. Only agriculture and veterinary science were more unpopular amongst young black students. So, you know, when one looks at all of that, there are very significant problems. Why are people being turned off history at university and even before university in schools and so on? So that's a problem that needed to be and needs to be addressed. Then we have the, the the fact that we could say, I'm going to say the history of Africa and the African diaspora. We We could say what people kind of call black British history. I'm not quite sure what that is necessarily. But anyway, what, what is called, you that term is used, is generally very poorly taught at university level. There are, there are no degrees, courses on it. There are one or two people, certainly since 2020, have been employed to teach it, but there are actually very, very few courses on it. So we generally have this problem. Of course, some of those courses that did exist, for example, the course at Goldsmiths at the master's level was, was closed down. Of course, we have very few historians of African and Caribbean heritage, academic historians, I mean, literally a handful, that's the sort of context, of, we could say, of what's going on. And then we have, obviously, we could come to the particular problem that we have at, at Chichester at the moment, where we, we established a course in 2018 specifically to address these problems, to encourage black students to come back into education, to study the history, and to begin research in the subject. And uh, we've run that course for five years. We've produced, you know, seven PhD students in that time, six of them at the University of Chichester. And now the course is threatened with termination. And the person who teaches the course, being myself, is also threatened with, some people say termination, not quite the right word in the sense that the university is not trying to assassinate me, 
but they are trying to term, terminate the post and put the research and careers of all the students I have about 16 black postgraduate history students at the present time, the biggest cohort in the country. So we are facing that kind of problem that a university in which a course has been established has been run successfully that has a the first person in this country of African heritage to become a professor of history being threatened with redundancy. So it, it suggests that the sector as a whole, as well as the specific university, are not very, very, very concerned about this kind of history. And I think everybody should be concerned about that. You know, that should be of concern. And of course, we need to take action to essentially to defend our history, that our history is important. Those who study it are important. Those who teach it are important. And, you know, we should we should defend what we've established and, and so on. So I think, anyway, I think that gives a, an indication of the kind of problems that we face in, in the sector. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Before we go any further, I should say that a university a spokesperson told the media that this was a wider problem of funding across several postgraduate courses. So it's important to sort of add their point of view to that. Does anyone have any other thoughts on the points that Hakeem raised? Just that I fully echo what he's saying. And I think, you know, we might come on to it later, talking about sort of 2020 and, and how things changed after that and, and the extent to which there's a backlash. I think there has been a number of people who have been 
employed at universities in sort of black history type positions, the extent to which those people are now leaving, either because of cuts or because of just it being a really unpleasant work environment in a lot of cases often people are quite isolated they're not they've not been supported and so it is quite a bleak picture in some senses and i think that kind of momentum from 2020 has in my like personal opinion has gone and i think there's a there you know it wasn't really given much time to kind of bed in and and my experience of studying of being a student in higher education is and you know quite recently is that the, the kind of knowledge of black history and also like methods that are used to to do black history which in some cases are slightly different it's, it's just the knowledge is really poor the knowledge of the literature is really poor so it's quite hard when you're a black student trying to use methods which are like very well established uh, especially particularly in the US you just don't have the, the the people in the universities spread across the UK to support that kind of research. Mm. Just echoing Hannah's point in terms of the backlash I totally agree in terms of after the horrific murder of George Floyd, there was this kind of rush by a number of corporate organisation, academic education to kind of, dare I say, jump on the bandwagon or doing something. And there was little thought or imagination or creativity and lack of resources and infrastructure to do that. So it's fully established so it was very piecemeal, let's do something for the sake of doing something so we can be seen as being visible without any thought. As I said, we're probably embedding it in terms of structure and supporting it. So that goes across the board, as Hakim said earlier, about the recognition and the value of the work and the importance of the work, and that's not acknowledged. Um, one of the points I also want to pick up upon is how you make it accessible because again as acknowledged there are several black historians I think we can all name them but in how you make that accessible to the wider public and for them to acknowledge the value within the work and why it's important and the relevance and that needs to be done I don't think that is being done adequately enough. I think it's still in silos and in pockets where people have a small community and network. But in terms of the work I do, it's how you make that accessible so people know how to access archives, how to realise the value of the work and why it's important. So it sounds like you're saying that some of the reasons that the momentum has declined since 2020 are structural reasons. There needs to be a sort of a, a wider engagement with how we tackle these subjects at a, at a higher level almost. There needs to be a wider engagement, but in terms of reality, there also needs to be a cost value recognition in terms of it's properly resources, it's properly funded. So again, it's properly embedded. So it's not a, an, an initiative or a scheme. And my background in the arts sector, it's always a scheme and an initiative. So you start the work and it's like a cycle. It's not building on what's happened before and progression. It's kind of people getting excited about, hey, we're going to have a scheme or whatever you're going to have. And it's very piecemeal. And once the funding runs out, it might be another two, three years. And then you see the whole thing being repeated again 
with another organization thinking, hey, this is a good idea. Let's do this. So there's no, from my personal point of view and from how long I've been around, I haven't seen any structures being built upon that we can progress. We kind of keep reinventing the wheel with different schemes and initiatives. I'm interested to know whether you think these problems uh, extend to other sectors. Do you think that heritage organisations are also experiencing these kind of problems? And I suppose, what's, what's the state of, of, of play in, in that field? So, as I said, the structural environment needs to change. There needs to be a value in terms of literally cost recognition of this work costs money. The people who are delivering the work are professionals. That needs to be valued and recognition and adequately rewarded. I think there's a, for me, there's a kind of reparatory question which isn't recognised, and, and that is that, you know, this history has been, whatever word wants to use, hidden, neglected, ghettoized, marginalised for, for centuries, literally, and that stems from the nature of the society in which we live and the way in which... Africans, those of African heritage, have been viewed, in other words, from the, the racism which is endemic in the society. So once one recognises that, and we have a, a day coming up in the coming weeks where there is there is that a special day from the United Nations to not only to recognise the struggle against slavery and so on, but also the struggle against racism and the role that education can play in that. So the UN recognises that, but we could say the society in which we live in general does not recognise it, does not see it as important, does not think that any repair needs to be done for the crimes of the past. And so this history is not considered to be important. And the, the statement that you read out from the University of Chichester is an example of that, that, that everything is seen in terms of, of money and of funding. So you don't make a commitment to education and to education of a transformative kind, of a reparatory kind. You don't recognise a, a particular course it's established to do something specific and you and it's when it's doing it, you need to support it. You just see it in terms of pounds and pence and so on. So this is a Eurocentric approach, um, that everything's, you know, everything is just the same and these are just commodities and we need to deal with them in certain ways and so that's the issue i think in all of these cases that whether we're looking at schools or universities or heritage organizations you know what needs to be done what is needed what does history tell us is required at this particular time to address the problems the issues the legacy of the past and is it being done and and generally speaking it isn't being done and of course there are initiatives from various organizations but my experience is that although we need to call on institutions to, to do the things that they should do we ourselves are the ones who actually need to do them. Hannah did you have anything you wanted to add? Yeah in terms of the heritage sector I think it's echoing really the points that that Pamela raised around reinventing the wheel and how often it feels like there is progress, but then there it stalls 
And I think one thing that I have really noticed both in schools and in, in the heritage sector is that we we kind of got really excited in a few years ago about teaching African kingdoms. So thinking about sort of the kingdom of, of Mali and, and a whole different variety of, you might want to call them like pre-conquest or, or sort of like early modern medieval and then and thought we were being like the first ones to do this and we were being really innovative and, and the children really, really, really enjoyed it and it was worthwhile work. But I then, you know, was reading some sort of, I think it was an article about the introduction of the national curriculum back in the 90s and people were teaching African kingdoms in London schools back then and thinking that they were doing this really exciting, innovative work. And, you know, they probably were, but how did it get lost, you know, between what was that, what's that span of like 30 years or so? And... And that kind of institutional support isn't there. It will have like peaks and troughs. And thinking about why that is, I think, you know, Hakeem has mentioned there are structural problems. There are, you know, there's structural racism in a lot of these environments and a lot of these institutions. And I think when I go into, I work with a lot of different heritage organisations and from in a freelance capacity. And so they're obviously interested in black history. Otherwise, they wouldn't be employing me. But very often there aren't many or any black members of permanent staff and so it's projects it's initiatives and and really good work has been done you know by English heritage and for a long time you know sort of we're talking like back to 2007 2008 when we're thinking about the bicentennial of of the abolition of the slave trade so this work isn't new but in terms of it's kind of lasting permanence. It might be a little exhibition or a little intervention or in a kind of artist's thing. And and then the actual main panels of the interpretation in the museums and the galleries and the historic houses, they don't change and nor do the kind of permanent members of staff. And so that work gets sometimes gets lost or gets forgotten or gets packed away. And I think then it feels like we are then reinventing the wheel and maybe we're not making as much progress. And I think that's where, you know, Hakeem's point is really important that sometimes it will come down to us, black people, black historians, organising and also working intergenerationally. And I think that's what some of the, you know, the work that that Hakeem's been doing is so important because that institutional memory, you know, it doesn't get lost. and, And hopefully we can kind of accelerate that progress rather than endlessly reinventing the wheel every 20 or so, 30 years. I should just add that people have been doing this teaching in school since the 1970s. You know, this is, in fact, the Young Historians Project is actually working on this history at the moment. Their project is to chronicle this history how it's been developed, who's introduced it, what are the ups and downs, what are the initiatives and so on. It's a very, very long history. I wanted to pick up on something, Pamela, that you said earlier, which is that the conversation has moved on in the years even since 2020. I wondered if I could get all of your thoughts on the ways in which it has done that. And I suppose if there's new and exciting areas of research or subjects or voices that we should be covering that we're not already. So I think there has been progress. I mean, I'd be happy to be corrected, but I do get this sense now that if you, you know, 20 years ago or or even 10 years ago, if you went to certain institutions and you talked about black people before the arrival of the Empire Windrush, they would be like, no, didn't like, they weren't there, didn't exist. And I do think that 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 knowledge of that there have been black people living in Britain, you know, since for thousands of years... I think that has is starting to filter down and I think people are starting to become more familiar with the idea of African Tudors, of Black Georgians. 
and there's been a number of different historians and and also TV programs. Now you can you can agree or disagree with Bridgerton, but I think it has really sparked an interest and a kind of acknowledgement of of black people in Britain before the Second World War. And I just think that that didn't exist a few years or you know, or decades ago. So I think there has been progress made. I think that's then enabled younger historians to think about asking different questions because it's less about proving that there were black people in Britain in the past. That work has been done. The archival material is incontrovertible, if that's the right word to use, um, undeniable. And so now it's about thinking about different questions. And I think there is some really exciting work that's going on, particularly around blackness and sexuality or blackness and gender, the experience of queer black people. Some younger historians are doing really interesting work on that. I think there's some really interesting work being done about the connections between Britain and the Caribbean and just how deeply entrenched they are and thinking about empire and how blackness and empire are so kind of linked when we're thinking about black British history, thinking about sort of West Africa and some really interesting work being done around the sort of beginning of Nigeria as as we kind of know it today and, and how it was such a different place than I think what we assume, you know, if we're thinking about how I was kind of how I grew up thinking about about Africa, it was this place where there was like no, you know, no houses and everyone was li- kind of living in, in mud huts. And actually, the, it, you can't, it couldn't be further away, you know, from the truth. And I think there's also then some really exciting work being done about methods in history. And I think when you think about black history and, and how, you know, there aren't just stacks and stacks and stacks of papers in archives in the same way that if you're wanting to know about British political history, for certain topics, some of the things that I work on, the archival material just isn't that isn't there. Like it doesn't exist. It wasn't made in the first place. But that history is very, you know, that past happened. So if we're thinking about black women, black mothers in 17th century Jamaica, trying to find source material that survives about that is really hard. But it clearly happened. There were clearly black women in Jamaica having children. So it's thinking about what other different methods do you need to use to to tell those stories and thinking about using methods from other disciplines, from from literature or from sociology or from linguistics to bring that history alive to people, to kind of tell them that this this past happened. And I think that's some of the really exciting work that is is happening. Now we've kind of established that there was a black presence in in Britain. I think in my experience, I've seen two significant shifts. So one is more about black British history, and not so much a reliance on African-American history, where it was just about Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks. I've got to show you my age, but 30 years ago, that was your lot. But you're pleased to get something rather than nothing. So that was the kind of focus. So I've seen this kind of gradual move to Black British history and looking at individual contributions and what that means in terms of the landscape but also as well a move away from, well, not so much a move away, but in addition, more taught history rather than the reliance on enslavement narratives and enslavement history. So again, some of the work I do in schools, I I remember as a young child said to me, I was teaching about the work I do around black scholars at the University of Oxford. And one of the scholars I, I write about, my seminal work is about Christian Frederick Cole, who was the first black scholar at the University of Oxford and also Britain's first black barrister. And again, Alan Locke, again, is an African-American. But 
the image I had was of Locke in this wonderful dinner jacket. And this little black child put his hand up and he said, Miss, Miss, black people dressed like that back then. And because I've seen the image countless times, I just went, yeah, of course, sure. And he said, Miss, before, whenever they tell us about black history, all we see is pictures of slavery and black people looking raggedy. They never tell us about this kind of work or what we've done. And it goes back to your point, Hannah, about this perception of what is African and African history and the perception of how it was. So I've seen two significant shifts. And from the point of view of it's more three-dimensional. So yes, enslavement history is important and the people doing that work, but it's also recognition it's more than that. That is not the focus of black history. And that's a shift that I've seen that it's important you have the contributions and that wider landscape of the different histories we talk about. Yeah, I mean, my memory goes back a very, very long time. And I think that, you know, one would like to think that because of the work we've done, there's been a change. We don't want to write ourselves out of history, the amount of work that we've done over the last 40 years definitely has made a difference. And in fact, we can see that, you know, there, there are more younger people engaged in history, certainly young people doing PhDs or doing other types of research into, into history and more young black people doing that research than there were 10 years ago or 20 years ago, certainly. So that's definitely a good thing. And there, there are other illustrations, as others have said, that um, the history is becoming a little better known than it was in the past in various ways in terms of you know, TV, the odd TV program, the odd book or a few books and so on. So there, there is definitely progress. And of course, the, the teaching of history in schools, I mean, is a constant battle with national curriculum. Um, one could say if one looks at a sort of longer 30-year or 40-year period, there is some progress, but there's also some retreat in the sense of the development of academies means nobody has to follow the national curriculum anyway. So um, that, that's quite a big challenge, a big problem to be resolved. So I think there's shift and there's change, you know, as a result, I say, of the work that we've done over forty, the last 40 years and, and more. But I have to say, I think, I should say, there's a lot of room for improvement. Let me put it that way. There isn't that much research. There is now much more research on on issues of gender and women. But when we say much more, we're starting from a very low base. Uh, so there isn't that much, actually. The work in the period before the 20th century is also extremely limited. 19th century, hardly any work. 18th century, okay, there's the work that people are familiar with and one or two individuals that are well-known, but it's very limited. If we go back further, it's actually very, very limited research. The work um, research that's being done on areas outside of London, again, there is some, it's good to see some, but it's it's in its infancy, all this stuff. So, as I say, when I look back over 40 years, I can see an, an advance. Otherwise, I'd say I wasted most of my life if there wasn't one. But uh, there's a long, long way to go. And I, I think that 
you know, we, we've talked to 2020 and it, it's good to reflect on what young people said during 2020 because one of the things that people were saying in 2020 was, what about history? We're still being taught the same things. We're still being taught about, you know, about slavery all the time. We're not hearing these things. I didn't learn them at school. We don't see them on TV and so on and so on. So I think this is what, just three years ago. And we we can we can we we're still hearing them today. So I think that there's still very serious issues and challenges. But yes, there's definitely we've we've made some advances. This is obviously a huge, diverse, complex subject. We have just a couple of minutes left. Is there anything that you'd like to talk about that we haven't previously addressed in this conversation? I mean, what, one thing, just building on what I said last time, is the world of publishing. I'm actually very loath to talk about publishers. So people who know me will realise that uh, I don't like publishers, generally speaking. But the world of publishing is is very problematic. I will, I will use that term. It is it's definitely a problem that needs to be solved. It's very, very difficult to get publishers and to get publishers to commit. It's difficult for young scholars, researchers to get funding. So these, again, are going back to the kind of systematic challenges and problems that we face and that we need to find solutions to. Pamela, is there anything that you'd like to add? I would just like to add in terms of the work I do to make it more accessible to people through the work I do in terms of the virtual tours and walking tours. I find when people come and they attend... So an example is when I find out about black scholars at the University of Oxford from the turn of the 20th century. There's a, I think anger is too strong a word to use, but people of my generation would say, we were never told this at school and we never knew about this. We were just conditioned to go into the factory at Ford Dagenham or into working as a copy typist. We didn't know about these histories or we didn't have these opportunities. And one of the things is, how do we get it out of academia and make it more accessible and engaging to people to realise the importance and the benefit? So I'm very a, a big passionate and champion about taking it out from academics and making that widely accessible and how you engage people, whether through creative, as a creative producer, creative methods, so people understand the relevance and the value and then they become historians themselves and I think that will mobilise in terms of the work Hannah's doing, Hakim's doing and they realise why that's important, why that needs to be documented and then they can see for themselves the power and start to make that change in that movement. So again it's passionate about making it accessible. I guess just from from my point, just to finish thinking about when I was teaching in schools, if you teach history well, students, all students, particularly black students, are really engaged with it. And then they take it at GCSE and then they take it at A-level and then they think about going on and, and doing it further. But doing that that work 
takes a lot of energy and knowledge and and resources, but it can happen. I think I just I wouldn't want people to kind of walk away and think, oh, black black students aren't you know aren't interested in in history or aren't interested in in their history because the appetite is huge. I think people get turned off when history is taught badly, when they feel like it's just dates, or when you know for black children when it's just slavery and they're made to reenact being on a slave ship. I mean, those things should just not be happening. But if you teach history well, I think you just see such like such a transformation in people and particularly in black children just having a completely different understanding of of the of the past and of and of their place in the past and i think that that is is so important to teach black history well in schools as well as to have it in heritage organizations universities in the media in television schools is a really important place but i think it's very much kind of part of an ecosystem hannah pamela hakeem thank you all so much for your time you can read more from this panel discussion in the November issue of BBC History magazine, on sale now. And to explore more black history content, visit historyextra.com forward slash topic forward slash black dash history. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.